What you're going to uh, what you're going to hear this morning is a 40-minute message crammed into 30 minutes, and I have no idea how I'm going to get all this material in, but I'm going to try. I'm going to talk real fast and uh, throw some things out. And uh, Claudia said I had permission to go over, if uh, if that's all right with you. We'll take a shot at it. I uh, met with a group of men this past week uh, for lunch, about a half dozen of us, and uh, the conversation got around to Christmas, and one of the men asked, what, uh, what does Christmas mean to you? I don't know why he picked on me first, but that was the question that was raised. What does Christmas mean to you? And I said, well, this is a very special Christmas for me. Uh, our whole family will be together, Randy and, and his family and our grandchildren and Brian and our new daughter-in-law. Can we have those lights turned down just a little bit? Thank you. And uh, Carolyn's mother, and uh, there'll be about ten of us around the table Christmas Eve, and it's a very special time for us. But I said, really, the meaning of Christmas is the Incarnation. That's the heart of it all, and that's what gives meaning to everything else, that God became a man. And uh, they turned to the man to my right, and they, and, and they asked him what, what he uh, thought of Christmas, what was its meaning to him, and he said, well, Christmas is family and friends and snowfields and trees and giving gifts and shopping and uh, love and joy and happiness. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, uh, and, and Jesus. And uh, I, I have a tendency to think uh, in pictures, and what came to mind was a, was a temple with a lot of busts sitting around the temple representing gods uh, representing one, one bust representing Ann Klein, another Bill Blast, and another Sony, and another Panasonic, and Jesus over on the right-hand side. And it reminded me of something that, that I had read a few weeks ago that, that G.K. Chesterton said. He said, there was a time, once upon a time in history, when the world almost died of broad-mindedness. When uh, Christians were invited to uh, put their statue of Jesus up alongside the statue of Addis and Apollo and and Mithra and all the other gods that were represented at that time. And he said the fact that they refused to do so was one of those turning points in history because otherwise, he said, Christianity would have gone to pot. And he said, I mean that, that metaphor in, 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 its, in, in its exact sense that all these religions were being mixed up into, into one pot, stirred together, melted down, and made into, into one. And the fact that Christians refused to do that, he said, was a turning point in history. They they continued to assert the uniqueness of Jesus. And I thought of a letter that uh, the Apostle John wrote in Second. It's called Second John in our New Testaments. Would, would you turn there with me, please? The book of Second John. We're going to abandon our studies in the Gospel of John for just this one Sunday. To talk about the importance of Jesus and the, and the fact that, uh, that Christmas means the incarnation. Jesus was made flesh. Uh, normally, we don't read other people's mail, but this is all right. This is an open letter. Uh, it's found in the New Testament, of course, and therefore we're invited to, uh, to read it. If you were to see it originally, it would probably occupy one side of a piece of papyrus. John, the apostle, took out a sheet of papyrus and scratched this note off on one side and, and sent it off to this individual that we'll talk about in a moment. And uh, I'd like to read it to you and, and then comment a moment for a moment or two on it. 
the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not I, not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing a new commandment, but uh, one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from from the beginning, his command is that you walk in it. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what what you, or some translations would say we, that is we apostles. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Now, uh, this uh, this letter traditionally has been ascribed to the Apostle John. It's anonymous. It, it's John's nature to uh, sort of cloak himself in obscurity. He just doesn't talk about himself very much, and he doesn't mention his name in this uh, in this letter. But traditionally, it's it's been ascribed to the Apostle, the Apostle John, who by this time was a very very old man. He must have been an in his 90s, close to 100, he lived longer than any of the other apostles. They were either martyred or died for, uh, for the sake of the gospel. John lived a long time. And uh, he refers to himself here literally as the old man. When we read elder, we think of, a, of someone who's an officer in the church, but really the, the word just means the old And apparently that's the way he was, uh, he was known in the early church. He was the old one. He could think way, way back into his history, and he could, he could remember Jesus. When I was a kid growing up in Texas, uh, we used to live near a little town called Duncanville, Texas, just south of Dallas. and They call it the cedar breaks, rolling chalk hills and cedar trees. And uh, there was an old fellow that lived up the creek from our house, and I can remember often walking by his cabin when I was walking the, the creek. And uh, he was just known to me as Uncle Bob. I never did know what his last name was, but he was very, very old. My father used to say Uncle Bob's as old as Methuselah. And I knew that was hyperbole, but he was, he was very old. As a matter of fact, Uncle Bob was born when Abraham Lincoln was president. That was 1865. That's a long time ago. He could... He could remember Andrew Johnson and Ulysses Grant and people like that that to me were just names in the history book. I was scared to death of him. Anyone that old had to be someone very, very important and fearsome. And I, I think John had that reputation in the early church. He was, he was the old one, the old man who knew Jesus. He talks about that in, in his letter, the first letter of 
of John, the book we call First John. He says, that which was in the beginning. That's his unique way of talking about the historic origins of Christianity. That which was in the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, he heard Jesus teach, which we have touched with our hands and our eyes have looked upon. John had seen Jesus in the days of, of his flesh. He had touched him. I'm, I'm sure that the apostles being men, you know, they must have clapped each other on the back and there were playful shoves and that sort of thing, the sort of thing that goes on all the time among men, and they had touched Jesus. John couldn't get over that. I mentioned last year my uh, our granddaughter, who was two at the time, who was toddling around our living room, and she wandered over to the crash that Carolyn has on the coffee table, and she picked up this little figure of Jesus and gave it a hug, kissed it, and then put it back in the, in the manger, and she said, Baby Jesus, sleep. And there's something about that that just touched me. My mind went back to this uh, John statement in 1 John. He had touched Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He was on the scene. As he puts it, we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, I think, uh, as an elderly man, had, uh, as the way people thought of him, he was someone who could go back in time. He could remember what Jesus was like. He'd seen him. He'd heard him. He'd touched him. Now, he's writing to someone he designates here as the chosen lady, and there's been a, a sort of an unending argument among commentators about who this lady is. Some would say that he's writing to a church which he personifies as a woman. That's a characteristic of New Testament writers. Peter, in, in 1 Peter, refers to she who is in Babylon greets you. And it's very clear there that he's speaking symbolically. He's personifying the church in Rome. So it is proper to speak of of the church as a woman. And that may be what John is doing here. He may be writing to a particular church that he was involved with, but I don't think so because I wonder then who the children would be. If the church is a woman, then uh, you might say, well, the, the church is, the children are churches that this mother church has spawned, but I don't think so because the last line in the, in the letter says the children of your chosen si- sister send their greetings, that's her nephews. I just think it's easier to take it as, as a woman, some woman that John is writing to. I think what the early church did under the inspiration of the Spirit is to select not only letters, general letters, to the churches, but individual letters. They selected one of Paul's letters to Timothy and one to Titus and one to Philemon. and They selected one of John's letters to Gaius. That's what Third John is. And, and also to, uh, to, to this woman who appears to be anonymous, some, some woman that, that he knew. Now, her name is not given, but there are some people who think that the word translated chosen here is really her name because the word chosen is eclecta, and that was a proper name in, 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 in the Greek world. And so just, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing, this is shot in the dark, but just so we won't have to refer to her as that woman, let's call her eclecta. That was, let's say that's her name. Can't be sure. But uh, I, I, I think it was some, some woman that John is writing to. And I, this is what I think is going on. Now, now look, you, you know what I keep telling you. Don't trust any man. Trust God. And I may be dead wrong, but one of the, th- one of the, the fun things about studying the Bible for me is to try to figure out what's going on. 
I mean, these letters were all written for a purpose. So I like to look behind the scene and try to figure out what's happening. And this is what I think happened. Now, don't take this as gospel. Okay, this, this, this is just what I think happened. You, you work on it on your own. I, I don't know where John was when he wrote this, this book. Maybe he was in Ephesus. He spent a lot of time there. Let, let's say he was at Ephesus, and he went shopping one day. He was in the grocery store. And uh, he, he saw a couple of young men that he knew. He recognized them as the sons of, of Eclecta. Now, he knew this woman from her past. She apparently was a fairly well-to-do person, may have been a single parent. We don't know. Her husband isn't mentioned. But in any case, she seemed to, seems to have opened her home to the, to the church because churches met in homes until the third century. We know that. That's just a fact. They didn't have church buildings. So this lady must have opened up her home, perhaps as a very large home, and the church gathered there on the Lord's Day, and they worshipped there. And John had gotten acquainted with her in one way or another and gotten acquainted with her family. She had a number of sons and daughters, and he happened to run across these two sons up in Ephesus. And, and, and he says to them, My, it's good to see you. How are you doing? And they say, We're doing very well. One of them says, I'm involved with the Campus Crusade on the local campus. And uh, another one says, I'm working with Young Life. And... We're just having a great time. Things are going very well for us. And uh, John says, how's, how's your mom? How's the collecta? And they say, well, things are not going well there. John, I wish, you'd, I wish you'd look her up next time you're in town. Or at least drop her a note because things are, are just not going well. You, you know mom. She has this great big heart. She has a heart as big as out, uh, all outdoors. She just loves everybody. Every stray that comes by, she feeds off the back porch. And uh, you, you, know how, you know what she's like. She's just that kind of person. She just loves everyone. Well, this teacher showed up, this young man showed up in town, and he started telling us things that were contrary to what you and the other apostles said about Jesus. And Ma's been listening to him. And the last time we, uh, we talked to her, she said, well, you know, Jesus said we're supposed to love everyone. And it's true, this man is saying some strange things, but he's so nice. He's just a peach of a fella. And, and, and I, you know, we just need to be understanding, and we need to, to listen to him, and, and we need to love him. Now, let me say, for, let me say uh, at, at the very outset here that this could have happened to a man. I'm not picking on women. The very fact that John goes on to discuss theology with this woman indicates that he believes that this woman can, can talk about these things on a sophisticated level. It could just as well have been a man. As a matter of fact, he wrote to Gaius in the next uh, letter. And he wrote to Philemon because he had some problems. Or Paul wrote to Philemon because he had some problems. So he's not putting this woman down, nor is he categorizing women as being shallow thinkers. That's not the point. Just happened to be a woman at, the, at this point who was thinking this way. Okay. So uh, John decides to sit down and, and write a letter to this woman. And I think that's the situation out of which this letter came. Now, it, follow me. This is what he says to her. Gives me great joy to find your children, some of your children. Some of them must have been at home still or scattered in other parts of the Roman Empire. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. You see them growing in faith. They're stable, solid, strong. And now, dear later, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but one which we had from the beginning. Remember, that's John's word for the historic origins of 
of the church, of Christianity. See, Jesus began to teach about 27 A.D. Uh, as you know, our calendars are off. He probably was born about 4 B.C. He began to teach about 27 A.D. He ministered until about 30 A.D. Then he was put to death, raised from the dead, ascended, came back in the person of the Holy Spirit to teach, to indwell the apostles. They began to write. Their preaching and writing ministry extended down to about 100 A.D. So you have a span of uh, time from about 27 uh, A.D. to about 100, A.D. 100, which John describes as the beginning. These are the historic origins of, of Christian faith when Jesus lived and when the apostles who wrote under Jesus' authority wrote about those days. That's, that's, that's the beginning. Now, he says, from the beginning, Jesus told us to love one another. So you're right to be loving, but this is what I mean by love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And you have heard from the beginning his command is that you walk in it. Now, if you notice, as we read through, truth and love are mentioned over and over again. Five different times he mentions truth. Five times he mentions love. In fact, earlier in the introduction, he says, I love you, but he says, I love you in the truth. In other words, it's love that's defined and described, circumscribed by truth. And then he says, because of the truth, it's truth that motivates us. It's truth that gives us the reason for loving people. And it's truth that tells us what love is. It's truth that tells us when to be tough with people. It's truth that tells us when to be tender with people. We don't know what it is to love people. If we just improvise and ad hoc our way along, we're always going to do things that are unloving. But if we act according to the truth, we're going to know what to do at the right time. And what we do will be loving. You see what he's saying? And he stresses that all the way through. As a matter of fact, in verse 3, when he gives the traditional uh, benediction or, or greeting that you often find in these letters, grace, mercy, and peace, he says these come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, and they come to us through truth and love. He joins these ideas together again. Love is explained by truth. Truth must be ma- is manifest in love, you see. Now, that's the theme of the book. You've got to hold these two things together. It's the truth that tells us how to love. And if we act according to truth, what we do will be loving. Now, he says, I want you to go back to the beginning and what Jesus told us. And what Jesus told them was that he was God in the flesh. That's the unique thing about Christian faith. That's the center of it all. We Christians say that God was manifest in the flesh. As John puts it in, in, in his gospel, and we talked about this chapter when we began our, our study of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Paul puts it another way. He says, great is the mystery of our religion, of Christianity. God was manifest in the flesh. If we go back to the beginning, that's what Christians believe. That's what they've always believed. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what, that's what Christmas means. And if we don't understand that, we not only miss the meaning of, of Christmas, we miss the meaning of Christianity. We just don't understand what Christianity is. That's what sets our faith apart from every other religion. 
God was manifest in the flesh. Now, uh, as John says, the problem is that uh, there are deceivers abroad who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And uh, earlier, he had written, if you turn back one page, at least one page in my Bible, to 1 John 4, 1. 1 John 4, 1. John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The uh, prefix anti or anti in Greek normally means instead of or in place of. And he's saying that what you're going to find is that people will uh, will talk about other Christs. They, they, there will be substitute Christs. There will be a series of Christs that you'll be presented with instead of the unique, the one and only Christ, the Son of God. And if anyone comes to you and says, there is another Christ, then, then he says they're deceivers. They're liars. They're not Christians. They can call themselves anything they want to, but you see, I guess you can, but it really isn't fair to call yourself a Christian and then just completely redefine Christianity. What John is saying is that if we call ourselves Christians, we've got to define Christianity in, in the terms in which the apostles and Jesus himself defined it. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we go back to the beginning, look at what the apostles said that then they'll tell us that Jesus is unique. He's, he's God manifest. He's God among us. God in flesh. There's no one like him. He, he's utterly unique. And if someone comes to you and tells you that he's simply one of a kind, John says that's a, that's a deceiver. And, and they're not Christians, regardless of what, what they call themselves. And if you notice, if you go back to the letter, the, the, the little letter of Second John, he describes them as those who go on, verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead is the way my translation puts it, but literally it's just those who go on. In other words, these are the people who, instead of going back to the beginning, to the historic origins of Christianity, are always going on. They think the truth is progressive. I, in fact, I heard a man say just this last week, truth is dynamic. It's always changing. And it's true. We're always learning things all the time. We're gaining new truths, but not the truth about the gospel. That's static. We go back to the beginnings, back to the historic origins, back to Jesus and the apostles. The deceivers were avant-garde with it. You know, they, they, they were learning new things all the time about Jesus and correcting the apostles. And John says, you can't do it that way. You've got to go back to the origins, to Jesus and the apostles and what they said about, about Jesus. And what the apostles said is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, you, you might raise the question, why does that, in what sense does that mean God has come in the flesh? Well, uh, what John is saying is that it's something unusual that Jesus came in the flesh. If that statement were said about me, David came in the flesh, that would simply be a truism. I mean, how else would I come? 
But the fact that Jesus came in the flesh indicates that he is someone unusual. He's God himself. And we either we believe that or we don't. And if, and if we don't, we're not Christians. And if we are and we put our faith in him and submit it to his lordship, then we are Christians. And you say, my, that is very intolerant of you. That's the, you know, that's the problem with Christians. They're highly intolerant. They're always making these bigoted statements that put everybody off. I didn't say that. The Apostle John said that. And, and therefore, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, I have to define myself in the terms in which he defined it. Uh, define Christianity, and it's not intolerant of me to say that you, you, you can't redefine Christianity. As a matter of fact, John says, if somebody comes to your house, and he's not talking about people who come knocking on your doors to share their message with you. Remember, the church met in homes. He's talking about people coming to your house church, asking for a platform from which to speak and teach. John says, someone shows up on your front door, then they want to come in and teach in your house church, don't let them in and don't bid them Godspeed is the idea. Don't don't say blessings on you or God bless you or give the impression that, that you agree with what they're saying because that isn't loving. You see the point he's making? That's not loving for them because they are deceived and it's not loving for the people that they might deceive. We've got to stick to the truth even if it seems intolerant. Tom Swanson passed on to me a a letter from a, a college president recently and about this whole matter of tolerance and intolerance. He put it this way. He said, I just received an irate later, uh, letter from a woman I had denied employment uh, at North Park. That's where he is uh, president. Her fury was great and as unreasoned as any I had known. During the inter- interview, she was pleasant enough, but when she was not hired, she was mad enough to burst an artery. You, she said, are an intolerant, bigoted, religious zealot who ought to be fired, she fumed. The ACLU will have your head. The woman had applied for a teaching job and had passed muster with her spiritual qualifications. She had no understanding of Christian faith. North Park College is a Christian college. She had no understanding of Christian faith and saw little need to search out its tenets. Live and let live, follow the golden rule, and don't fence me in with her three cardinal theological understandings. Yes, I replied. We are intolerant. We're intolerant of the idea that God is a warm fuzzy and little else. We're intolerant of the premise that everybody can work out their own system of salvation. We're intolerant of the idea that we can only know by research and reason. We do know what God is up to, and we can know Him in more than vague terms. We are intolerant of motives not God-induced or a philosophy that leaves man in his moral quagmire without help. To hire you would be to limit students' ability to reason well and to comprehend Uh, themselves as objects of God's grace. My lecture fell on deaf ears. The applicant bolted out the door without thanks for my enlightening her. I could not blame her much. She felt put down, and I did not understand at all, and did not understand at all what I was declaring. But how could I be tolerant of bad thinking and still communicate care? How do you how do you resist undisciplined minds while trying to, to warm their hearts? And then he argues that for a bit, and then he concludes... It's not intolerant to reject falsehood. Neither are we tolerant when we warmly appraise and accept screwy ideas. But in our wise intolerance, we must not lose our love. And in our tolerance, we must not give away our souls. Such a good statement. We Christians are intolerant of screwy ideas. When people come to us and say Christmas means love and warmth and goodness and kindness and sweetness and peace on earth. 
and, and they leave out Jesus. That's a screwy idea. And we are intolerant of those sorts of ideas because Jesus and the apostles were. It's the greatest story I'd ever told. Young man, young woman made their way into a cave one night because there wasn't any room in the inn. And down underneath the ground, under the feet of people who could care less, God was born, an infant. God became flesh. It's the greatest story the world has ever known. And we need to make it known. We've got to proclaim it. John says, here was this man who looked like any other man I ever knew. And, and I put my arms around him and I hugged him and, and I touched him and I listened to him and I walked with him and I fished with him and I, I talked to him. And, and then I began to realize that this was God himself in the flesh. The answer to all the dreams and the apprehensions and aspirations and hungers and yearnings of the human heart from the very beginning of history. That's where all those mythologies come from, you know, that, that we get confused about. You know, what, what about these descending and ascending gods? There's nothing more than this hunger of the heart that someday God would come along and set things right. They're all distortions of the real thing, but they're all uh, a mirroring of, of the yearnings of, of the heart. And uh, he came. He came. He came to earth. And as, as Chesterton says, men don't make mythologies anymore. They don't have to. Because he's here, you see. He came. He's real. Just as, just as real as Dan Brown or a- anybody else who's sitting here. In, in C.S. Lewis's uh, children's novel, The Horse and His Boy, there's an incident where... Uh, Bree was arguing. Bree is the, one of the horses. Arguing that Aslan is not a real lion. Uh, Aslan, as you know, is the figure of Christ in in these tales. Uh, Bree says uh, he may be as strong as a lion or as fierce as a lion, but it's absurd to think of him as a real lion. Aslan says, "Come nearer, nearer still, my son." Do not dare not to dare. Touch me. Smell me. Here are my paws. Here is my tail. These are my whiskers. I am true beast. And uh, Bree admits to being a fool. Aslan says, happy is the horse who knows that while he is still young. Or the human either. What does this mean? Well, it, first of all, it means that, that God cares. He, he, he cares. It wasn't didn't remain aloof from our problems. He cares about our suffering, our broken homes, our broken hearts, the pain, the agony of, of the lives that we all live. He knows and he cares. And he did something about it. He cared enough to send the very best. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a prophet. He himself came. And when we... When we see these crushes and we see that little baby in the manger, that's what ought to, it ought, that's what ought to come to mind. God cares. And then secondly, he understands. Author of Hebrews puts it like this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. That's us guys. 
For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. John Donne says twas much that man was made like God that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. I don't have time to develop this passage. There's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of profound uh, thinking here that he had to become a man in order to make atonement for sin. That that's said here, and then it goes on to say that because he's a a man, he understands. He understands the passions, the drives, the hurts, the pain in your own life. He understands all those things. And then finally, because he became man, he could save us. That's what he came to do came to save us from our from our sin. Save us from the penalty of of our of our sin and save us from the power of sin upon us and and save us from from damnation. We're assured our destiny is certain and assured at death, as this passage says, we're going to step into an eternal relationship with, with God. He came to save us. The Son of God became man. So men can become the sons of God. It's like a man becoming a, a tin soldier. So tin soldiers can become real men, a real women. I mentioned uh, to the men Wednesday morning a conversation I had with some men at the courthouse recently. I was getting dressed, and uh, there were some men on the other side of the Lockers that were talking. The thing that struck me about their conversation at first was the fact that they could not complete a sentence without using an oath or God's name in vain or something of that nature. That doesn't bother me. I realize that they do not realize what they're doing. But uh, after a while, one of them began to talk about something he had read recently, and he said, "Yes, he said it is true." He said, "If here, here's a God who who put all the stars out into space and." who controls the universe, and I cannot believe that the God who created the universe could care for a slob like me. And uh, at that point, I had to get into the conversation. And <clears throat> although it is difficult to give a very dignified witness when you're standing there in your skivvies, but I uh, went around the other side of the locker, and I said, I just, I'm here to tell you that uh, he cares about slobs like you and me, and that's what Christmas is all about. He came to say we got to forget that. I mean, we can't forget that. We've got to remember that. That's what it's all about. This is when God became man. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to thank him for coming. Isaiah predicted that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child and they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. He's with us. He cared enough to come. He came to save, and he understands. Let's just thank him that he came. And if you, these past years, have missed the meaning of Christmas, or you have missed the meaning of Christianity, and and you don't know the Lord, you don't know His love, His care, His concern, 
You can come to know him this morning. He came for you. Just ask him to come in. Ask him to be your Savior. Thank him for dying for your sins. Ask him to be your Lord. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. Lord, we thank you so much for coming. We must confess that that uh, we don't think much about Christmas and what it means anymore. We've lost sight of its significance. Restore that to our minds and our hearts. And help us, Lord, through this year to worship you as, as Lord indeed, as the one who came to save us. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.